Hello everyone and welcome to the third in our new series of Northern Rose Fulbright Financial Services podcasts, which we're calling EMEA Touchpoints, where financial services partners in our EMEA offices discuss what they are seeing in their local market. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge, and for this podcast we will be covering regulatory developments in Australia. And for this I'm very pleased to be joined by James Morris, a partner in our Sydney office. Welcome James. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here, and uh, particularly this time uh, doing one of these podcasts with you in the London office personally. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yes, and I'm sorry we didn't have any good weather for you as is, is well. Okay, um, there's a lot going on in Australia, and I wanted to perhaps start with reforms to payment system regulation. This is something we're seeing in many jurisdictions, including the UK, given that digital products are changing the way consumers make payments and the way businesses provide payment services. Um, in the summer, the Albanese government took certain important steps to modernise the way Australians make and receive payments. Uh, James, can you tell our listeners a bit more about these steps and anything which particularly caught your eye? Yeah, look, absolutely. And modernisation really is the uh, the key term here, and that is uh, exactly where uh, Australia uh, and Australian regulators are going with uh, changes to the uh, to legislation at the moment. Um, payments is a, a very good example. Uh, now, if we look at, at some of the key points, really one of the, the main ways Australians have been making and receiving payments is through digital wallets. Uh, and good examples are those provided by Apple and Google. Now, due to the current scope of our quite old payment system regulation, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, which is the relevant regulator uh, in this space, uh, has found itself with limited power to regulate these types of products within the uh, the current payments ecosystem. Now, this, as again, as part of the modernisation, may soon change. Uh, the Australian government has just released an exposure draft of a bill intended to amend uh, this old act, uh, the purpose of which is to ensure that uh, both uh, regulators and the government can address what are uh, continual new risks related to payments, uh, particularly as the provision of payments uh, continues to evolve and increase in complexity. Now, there's a couple of updates that are, are particularly critical in relation to the uh, to the legislation. Uh, the the biggest one and, and one that's caused quite a bit of controversy uh, so far among stakeholders. Uh, is expanding the definitions of what constitutes both a, a payment system uh, and a participant in that payment system under the Act. Uh, now, this, given the, the increased breadth of regulation, would confer additional power uh, to the Reserve Bank of Australia to be able to regulate uh, new and emerging payment systems, uh, buy now, pay later products, digital wallet pass-through services, uh, a good example, Apple Pay or, or Google Wallet, uh, cash and transit services, and uh, services that facilitate payment in crypto assets, such as payment stablecoins, uh, where such entities provide services to existing payment systems, uh, such as uh, the Visa or MasterCard schemes. Uh, other changes, including, including a new ministerial designation power uh, that's intended to allow particular payment services or platforms that are seen as presenting risks of national significance to be subject to additional oversight by appropriate regulators. Uh, previously, this sat uh, solely with the uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, and hand in hand with, with any change is a, a revisiting of the, uh, the penalties regime. Uh, and there has been or will be an increase to maximum penalties for certain criminal offences to reflect the seriousness of the misconduct. Now, with any change, and, and not unexpectedly, 
there's been a mixed response from from industry stakeholders and and quite a strong response from uh, from some of them that uh, may now find themselves caught up by the uh, the changes to the regulations. Uh, and in particular, certain participants have objected to being regulated as payment providers or, or payment systems uh, on the basis usually that they they argue they don't provide payment services. Uh, really, they see themselves just as a, a new way customers can present bank cards, for example, through phones. Um, really, they, they say they're, they're just a technical architecture for banks to offer their, their consumers uh, a safer and more secure way to pay. And so the wallet is, you know, in that regard, pro-competitive uh, by allowing various cards to be stored. Look, given given the various concerns that have been raised, and, and as this is really just one of a number of changes aimed at modernising the payments regulatory framework, uh, I suspect the uh, the legislative change process still has uh, a little way to go. Okay, thanks, James. Be interested to see how this one plays out. Another hour I'd like to touch on now is buy now, pay later, or BNPL. Again, we know there's a lot going on in the uh, buy now, pay later space in many different jurisdictions. We saw that in our regulation around the world update on buy now, pay later, which we published um, in January this year. In the summer, I saw that you had issued a client briefing note, buy now, pay later, yes, it's about to be regulated credit. Concerning the news that Australia would require buy now, pay later services, as a consumer credit product under new laws forcing uh, buy now, pay later providers to carry out background checks before lending. Uh, my question to you, James, is um, what do the reforms mean for firms and have there been any further developments since your useful briefing note? So, look, it, it's a very interesting question. It's a, a topical question. Uh, and maybe if I, I take the second part of that first regarding any further developments. Um, strangely, since the flurry of activity middle of the year, um, and the announcement by the uh, the minister uh, in relation to the uh, the change to the regulatory approach, uh, there actually haven't been any further announcements. It's been been strangely silent on that uh, on that front. Uh, we are expecting to see a an exposure draft of the legislation uh, by the end of the year. Uh, we're we're now in November. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. So hopefully it's just around the corner. Uh, but really just to, to reiterate what the, the implications of the new regulation uh, are expected to be, essentially buy now, pay laters will be required to hold an Australian credit licence, um, just like the providers of uh, other forms of credit in the market, um, or otherwise be an authorised credit representative of an existing uh, licensee. Uh, now, what we're seeing in buy now, pay later is uh, certainly some synergies between jurisdictions, and uh, this is one of those areas where there are a lot of comparisons that can be drawn with the way that uh, the United Kingdom is uh, uh, approaching uh, the regulation of buy now, pay later products. Um, and one of the similarities is around merchants uh, and merchants who offer buy now, pay later products to consumers. Uh, similar to the position I, I understand is being taken in the UK, uh, those merchants will not be required to be an authorised credit representative of the buy now, pay later provider. Um, yeah, I think that is broadly broadly consistent. Um, yeah, the other obligations that will flow from needing to be a uh, the holder of a licence, um, there will be a, a number of general obligations, including requirements relating to uh, internal and external dispute resolution. Uh, hardship provisions need to be included. Uh, product disclosure uh, and other minimum standards of conduct required of a uh, of a credit licensee. Um, the, the biggest one and the one that's caused the, the most discussion really uh, goes to uh, assessing 
uh, whether uh, a buy now, pay later credit or, or a consumer um, and the, the type of product, whether it is unsuitable for a person, the, un, the unsuitability test. Uh, similar in many ways to the existing uh, responsible lending obligations framework for other credit products uh, in the Australian market. Uh, there will be some scaling uh, in relation to that question uh, in terms of the level of risk that that product uh, or service provides. Uh, and it will be intended, which is again useful in the whole context of the modernisation of, uh, of regulation, intended to be technologically neutral. Um, what's unclear though is what the exact form of those credit checks might be. Um, and uh, obviously the associated cost for firms in, uh, in complying with those checks. Now that sits hand in hand with the, uh, the existing design and distribution obligations already required under the Corporations Act, uh, under which uh, buy now pay later providers currently, uh, currently are obliged to comply. Okay, thanks James. I, I think an updated version of regulation around the world on buy now pay later is very much on the cards for 2024. So let's move on now, and no update from Australia would be complete without mentioning ASEC, which I understand issued in the summer its corporate plan for 2023 to 2027. And the plan outlined how it intends to deliver its four-year strategic priorities, being product design and distribution, sustainable finance practices, retirement outcomes, and technology risks. It also listed various other strategic and regulatory projects and their expected timeframes. Considering ASIC's corporate plan, uh, to your mind, James, what are some of the things that firms should bear in mind as we approach 2024? As a starting point, I think it's interesting to see how uh, the corporate plan uh, of the regulator has evolved over the last 12 months. Uh, we have a, a number of challenges in our market, uh, high inflation being uh, being one of them, as you know, I know the United Kingdom is uh, uh, is also suffering, um, and with that, um, that has resulted in a, in a corresponding increase in interest rates that is continuing. Um, hand in hand with, I guess, the additional challenges for, for consumers and investors uh, is a, a real focus on increasing enforcement activity where where firms are, are seen as doing uh, doing the wrong thing. Now, consistent with the, the modernisation theme again, working its way through the Australian regulatory environment, uh, we're also seeing changes, and these have come out in the corporate plan, uh, relating to the impact of technology in financial markets and services. Uh, and a good example in this regard is uh, the proposed CHESS uh, replacement program, uh, essentially updating a 30-year-old clearing and settlement system. Uh, but really, going back to your question, to draw out a, a couple of touch points from the plan, uh, if we look at, at design and distribution obligations, so... As I touched on, rising interest rates are posing challenges for mortgage holders uh, as repayments become more costly. Some households are experiencing, uh, obviously, quite significant mortgage stress um, and are having to curtail spending. Uh, insolvencies are expected to remain uh, and become more prevalent as, uh, as businesses manage uh, or try to manage these higher interest rates. Um, and you see small business in particular uh, facing multiple cost challenges. With that environment in mind, uh, ASIC have, have flagged they'll be taking more enforcement action against financial services participants where the actions of those participants unfairly impact small businesses uh, in particular, including in relation to things like unfair contract terms, uh, insolvency, uh, the promotion and supply of high-risk or unsuitable products. Uh, so this is where we're looking at, at the design and distribution uh, obligations. 
all with that overarching aim of ensuring that products are fit for purpose, uh, such as buy now, pay later products. Uh, again, a, a very topical issue um, that continues uh, is greenwashing uh, and looking at the growth of sustainability-related investment. Um, that goes hand in hand with a greater risk of, of poor disclosure uh, and greenwashing, uh, including particularly through the, the use of net zero statements uh, and other sustainability-related claims. Uh, ASIC has been and will be taking more greenwashing interventions. Uh, we're certainly seeing that play out uh, in a number of cases at the moment. So, I mean, really, what's the message here? Firms should be careful to ensure that they're not greenwashing. Uh, in other words, misrepresenting the extent to which uh, a financial product or investment strategy is environmentally friendly, sustainable, or, or ethical. Um, now, there has been some guidance uh, published by the regulator in terms of its approach, um, and you can find that uh, uh, on their website, uh, which is Information Sheet 271. Um, I guess consistent with, uh, with environmental approach, we also note that uh, there is the imminent introduction of climate-related financial disclosure requirements in Australia. Now, these requirements will be aligned with the ISSB's global baseline, requiring a significant capability uplift uh, really across the industry. But similar to the issue with uh, greenwashing, um, we suspect that ASIC will be targeting any climate-related financial disclosure uh, that has that misleading element to it. Very interesting. And uh, it was very interesting as well when we did regulation around the world focusing on the ESG last month, um, the Australian um, update. And there's a lot more to come on greenwashing from all the different jurisdictions that we work in. Um, finally, before we go, I did see um, that on 9th of November last year, changes were introduced to the Australian Consumer Law, which prohibit businesses from proposing, using or relying on unfair contract terms in standard form contracts with consumers and small businesses. Now, businesses should have been preparing for the changes by assessing their standard form contracts with their suppliers and customers to address any compliance risk. Uh, James, very briefly, um, what would be your key message to firms now? Well, look, the key message um, that I, I hope firms are aware of is that the legislation uh, actually comes into force on uh, 9 November 2023. Um, now, whilst that's extremely close, uh, it's, it's still not too late to start a documentation review process, albeit um, clearly completing that process might be uh, somewhat challenging uh, within the deadline. Uh, so our message is really, look, if you haven't started um, or you're still thinking about it, sooner rather than later would be the, uh, would be the prudent approach. Um, and that's particularly the case because of the significant financial penalties for non-compliance with the, uh, the new regime. Uh, previously, it was simply that the terms would be void, um, but now you can end up with, uh, with ballpark uh, non-compliance penalties anywhere between $2.5 million to $50 million. Australian dollars, depending on uh, whether you're uh, you're looking at an offence relating to an individual or a uh, or a small business. So, like anything, penalties-wise, it does tend to focus the mind um, in terms of compliance. And we would uh, be more than happy to speak to anyone uh, who uh, has perhaps put off the uh, the process a little bit uh, a little bit longer than uh, than maybe should have been the case. Thanks, James. I know you've been doing a lot of work um, in, in that area. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, there's an awful lot going on in Australia. So my thanks for James for sharing his thoughts on the latest regulatory developments in Australia. 
If you would like to know more about regulatory developments in Australia, then James and his colleagues produce a very helpful monthly financial services wrap-up, which you can find on the Northern Rose Fulbright website or indeed on our Regulation Tomorrow blog. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.